Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Tis the season for strawberries. That's right. Now is prime time of year to get your hands on this delicious fruit and take a bite. Unless you're allergic. If so, allow me to offer my deepest apologies. For the rest of us, I'm overjoyed to report that here in Middle Tennessee, it is peak strawberry season. This hour, we'll talk with some local farmers about what makes this time of year so special to them. We'll also check in with the founder of a community garden and talk about some other in-season foods. Get ready for a tasty conversation. But first, over the next month, many young adults across Tennessee will hear their names called and walk across stage to receive a college degree. But a growing number of black males will not be attending commencement. Here to, with us to talk about this phenomenon is WPLN reporter Damon Mitchell, who just published a story at WPLN.org. What's up, Damon? Welcome back. How's it going, Khalil? I'm doing well. How are you, my friend? I'm good. So, so what's up? Black males are not graduating with their peers. What's happening? So um, talking to black males who did drop out of college and even graduated, um, two common things came up. One was mental health disparities, um, which I, I know you'll be playing a clip from someone that I interviewed. Um, but having kind of unaddressed traumas um, makes just completing harder, uh, completing college harder to do. And then also there's been a lot of people feel that feel like there's an issue with the way college is promoted. It's kind of like a go to college, go to college, go to college. And a lot of people aren't understanding why. Mm-hmm. As, as you looked into this, you know, what has come up for like deeper reasons as to why this is happening? Um, I, I think there's, so there, there's a, a couple of things. So I, I think there's a, a real family dynamic where um, even you may have a parent or a grandparent who didn't go to college. So they kind of want um, that grandchild or their son to go to college. Um, and so it's like, I want you to have a better life. Just go. I don't care what you go for. Just go. Um, but in that kid's mind, maybe that they don't want to go and maybe they are going just to kind of please a parent or a family member. Mm-hmm. So when they actually get to the classroom and sit down, there's just no motivation to want to do the work and and, and kind of finish. Um, and then also, I think um, and it, it, goes, it goes back to the clip that you'll be playing, but a lot of people um, tell they tell black males to kind of when you're going through some type of emotional thing, just to like suck everything up. So yeah, it becomes a point when you like get to a college environment and you're like maybe on your own, like all of that stuff kinds to it, it resurfaces. And like at that point, you really like sucking it up at that point just isn't realistic. You know, I want to get back to that emotion, emotional piece in a minute. But, you know, what about the colleges and university themselves. Are they aware of this issue? They are aware. Um, The state last year, they started a black male success initiative. So um, they're working with different people that work in post-secondary across the state. And they started a a task force. And um, this year, they're planning to start doing listening tours where they will just go to different college campuses to speak with black males about the challenges that they are facing in inside of the classroom or in college. You know, I wonder 
if this is about like the misconceptions our society has about higher education, that you have to have a college degree to be successful. What do you think? Um, you don't. And I will say that, and this is kind of like one of those, that statement is really like a one size fits all statement to make. Um, and when you look at it, like stats do show that people with the college education do tend to make more money in life. But um, when those conversations are had, like we're not telling kids about like racial disparities that exist and mm -hmm. even gender disparities in the labor market. So, um, and stats do show that if you're black, like having a degree does not mean that you're going to be successful. You know, high schools, are they really preparing black male students for college? Um, I'd say no, just from speaking um, with parents and, and when I was kind of covering K through 12 education, I've, I've always heard that a lot of students felt that they were unprepared um, and also talked to one of the people I interviewed for this story also told me that he was not prepared for college um, in high school. Is it about rising costs? You know, colleges getting more expensive every year. Is the rising cost of attending colleges, are that, is that presenting problems for some of these black males? It is, but that's also something that's affecting everybody. So I wouldn't say that it's like if you lower college costs that black males will suddenly kind of have this jump in graduation. You kind of talked about this earlier about college life and what it's like to be on the campus and then being alone. It's very stressful and it can be isolating for some, let alone black males. You know, did you speak to anyone who faced that issue? Yeah, I, I talked to... Um, so Jamel Turner, um, he's the, the guy that I mentioned that said that he wasn't prepared for college and he had a, like had all of these like emotional things going on. Um, so that did affect him somewhat. But he was also somebody who like he had a before he dropped out, he had a three point eight. Um, mm -hmm. So he was doing really well as far as being able to um, just kind of push some of that stuff to the side and succeed. But there are also, of, of course, students who can't do that. Like you said, you spoke with Jamel Turner, a former University of Memphis student who was forced to leave for financial reasons. But uh, Jamel believes that there's another factor behind low black male graduation rates in Tennessee. Let's listen. Honestly, I think that uh, it starts very young. I think it's like the way uh, we're parented. You know, everybody in the black community is very important to present very masculinely and, you know, suck it up and so that we don't learn how to process emotion. We don't learn how to do certain things so that we allow, like, you know, we allow deviance and stuff like that to take over. So, Damon, tell me, how do you think what Jamel was talking about impacts graduation rates? It really just kind of it sums up um, what the experience is for a lot of black males on inside of a college campus. Like, it's just... When you're like dealing with all the like college, I often hear like college is like the place where you find yourself and you like mm -hmm. go to have fun. Mm -hmm. You really can't do that if you're just if you're so used to holding a bunch of things in and then you kind of get to this environment. Um, it's really just like hard to focus and enjoy college or even go to class every day and, and turn in work and, and study for tests and things like that. You know, going back to something Jamel mentioned a little bit earlier um, in that clip. I know I felt the pressure, not really from society, but from my family, you know. I, it was unspoken, but there was this sense that if I didn't graduate, I didn't have to bother coming home. That was definitely made it clear by my mom in, 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 some, in no uncertain terms. You know, did anyone talk about how family dynamics affected them? Um, so I, I spoke with 
um, Daryl Miller, who works as a, a coach for an organization called Persist Nashville. And he did talk about that and how, like, a lot of times, like, nobody's, not a lot of people are telling young black males to, like, go to college. Like, you can maybe be an astronaut. You can be, um, like, he used the example of being, like, a dean of a university. So it, it's kind of more like families are saying, go to college because I didn't go. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, it's like, well, what's the end goal for me? And I, I think we don't give a lot of credit to black males for knowing what they want. And, like, you can clearly see that in the world that people, black males with college degrees aren't getting like these magnificent jobs, even if they're qualified for them. So we, we don't give enough credit um, to young black males for kind of recognizing that. Going back to another thing that Jamel mentioned, these expectations of masculinity. Did he say any more about that? Yeah. It's, um, so he's um, actually, he's in the process of, of starting therapy now um, just to kind of, like the, the whole reason he dropped out is there's some things with financial aid um, and his mom was supposed to like fill out some forms. She never did that. Um, there's more about that in the, in this story, but um, like he's at a point now where he wants to get over that. So he kind of talked about um, like having even on college campuses, like therapists on, on campuses where black males can kind of go to, to just like open up and, and talk about things. You know, how about you? Did you feel like you had a personal connection to any of these stories? I did. Uh, I'm not a, it took me maybe 10 years to graduate college and I, I got kicked out a couple of times, dropped out uh, for this, like the same reasons that are mentioned in the story. Um, so I, I did feel a real personal connection and it, it even made me think about like my own mental health and the things that Jamel was saying about therapy. I've always um, felt like it was just kind of weak to do, mm -hmm. um, which is, I'm not saying it's weak, but that's just kind of how I like grew up, like doing that or like showing weakness was something that's not appropriate. So it really made me just kind of reflect. Yeah. Showing weakness is is something that made you a mark in yeah. the community often. You know, I'm thinking of like alternatives. What are the alternatives to college that young young black men are exploring? Um, so trade school, some people like trades. A lot of people want to start their own businesses, which kind of, um, it kind of gives people the confidence that if they fail, it's because they failed and not because maybe they didn't, didn't get hired because of like racial discrimination or something like that. Um, and even when we, it's also important to know that like college is not a bad thing. Um, but there is just a matter of like actually sitting down with a, a young black male and saying, what do you want to do? If this is what you want to do, this is the path that you should take in college. And this is, if you do get that job, like this is the money you'll be making. So I, th I think it's a combination of um, like people going to trade schools, wanting to start their own thing, but also want to just stress the importance of like going to college is not bad, but there needs to be some intentionality behind it. You know, it makes me think about my own experience. I had two older sisters who were in college by the time I got there. So any type of questions that I had, I was able to talk with them and they were able to really help me out kind of being siblings, but mentors in a way that really, really was beneficial for me. You know, what are you keeping an eye out for as you continue to report on this? Um, of course, like this, like when we talk about kids not being prepared, so um, to seeing if high schools are kind of recognizing these numbers and adjusting. Um, and then also, like, I know the state wants to do some some listening tours. So seeing how those things go, 
Um, and just seeing like if the conversation is going to change as far as what can be done so that black males are at least graduating at the same rates as everyone else. This feels like it can be an entire show for This Is Nashville. So, Damon, stay tuned on that. Would but it? in the meantime, I want to thank you for sharing your reporting, my friend. Damon Mitchell is enterprise reporter for WPLN. Damon, thanks again. Thank you. We're going to have to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about eating some strawberries. Actually, we're not going to eat them, but we're going to talk about them with local farmers about why strawberry season is so sweet. And we want to hear your favorite way to enjoy strawberries. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. It looks like it's going to storm today, but earlier this week it was beautiful and sunny out at Slate Farms outside of Clarksville. Just off the road on exit 11, right next to a small one-story house, there's a tent and a truck facing the strawberry fields. Our producer, Rose Gilbert, paid a visit. Under the shade of a pop-up tent, George Hurtenstein oversees card tables covered in baskets of bright red strawberries, warm and sweet-smelling from being out under the sun. Chuck, I need to get on the berry. Pick one out now. Put it in the box for you. Some folks prefer to pick their own, especially if they have kids with them. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, ma'am. So what you want to? Okay, I just wasn't sure if y'all were letting people pick today. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Great, thank you. How many buckets would you like? Just one. Just one. Yeah. First six uh, rows are Sweet Charlies, and the next six rows. One customer asked George if it's been a busy season. Yes. Good. Yes. Oh, it's good. Yeah. What you want? Yeah. As usual. I haven't eaten lunch yet, and here I am, hearing about delicious, delicious foods. I'll make it through somehow. I'd like to introduce my first guest in the meantime. Jen Kelly Moreland is with Kelly's Berry Farm, and she joins us now. Jen, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Glad to be here. So happy to have you. So tell me, what does strawberry season mean to you? Oh, strawberry season and the farm. It just means everything. You know, my grandfather started it and passed it down to my dad and my uncle and my brother and cousin have continued it. And I've, you know, I grew up on the farm and and work on the weekends and just anytime I can. It's just such a special part of, you know, my childhood. And it's just a family tradition that I feel so, you know, blessed to be a part of. So. Tell us more about what it was like to grow up on the family farm. What are some of your favorite memories? Sure. So um, it's my brother and I and then my two cousins. So we were always down at the farm uh, before they started the underground irrigation. They had the big giant, you know, sprinkler irrigation. So we would be out in the fields, you know, running in those um, as my dad and uncle were preparing for the season. And then uh, we had four wheelers. We would ride around and we were always down at the at the stand. You know, we'd make lemonade and sell that. And just just so fun to be be around everybody and and, you know, show them where where strawberries come from. So when I turned 16, um, my brother and I started going to the Murfreesboro Farmers Market uh, every Saturday and 
you know, we, we continued that and I, I still go. So. That's um, you know, hearing about the, the weather, it's very hard to predict. And so I want to know, like, yes. what, what preventative measures do you all take to preserve the safety of the berries? Um, so, I mean, it's farming. So, you know, you really can't control the weather. You just have to, you know, do everything you can to prepare for it and pray for the best. But um, as far as in the springtime, when it does start to warm up, but we still have some cold mornings, you know, and we could have that frost. So with uh, berries, we have to we have to manually, you know, put covers over them so that the frost doesn't kill the blooms because if they, you know, kill the blooms, then we won't have the strawberries. So we do, um, you know, all of the family gets out in the fields and, and covers them up. So, but as far as the rain, you know, you really can't, you can't predict it and you can't do anything about it. So you just, you just kind of pray for the best, you know, some years are, are great and the weather works out, you know, perfect and others, it's it's a rainy season, so it's just hit or miss. But I'm wondering about like what it takes to have a successful grower. Are you guys working on berries year round? Absolutely, yes. So um, I'm not the farmer, but I do. I go to the markets on the weekends. But it's my um, my dad and uncle and brother and cousin. So they're you know down there throughout the whole throughout the year. You know they plant a cover crop of some radishes and turnips and they, they grow and then they'll, you know, die and rot. And that, you know, produces some organic matter to fertilize the soil. Um, and they have to, you know, we have to plant every year new strawberries. So we, you know, they build up the, the rows and, and put the plastic on there. And then there's just, you know, so much to it to make it, come together (laughs) for the summer. You know, there's a lot of, a lot to do throughout the year. So. Now, Jen, I understand this season is very different for your family for a couple of reasons. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes, yes, it is. So we, um, we had a devastating, devastating fall, you know, um, my brother actually passed, um, in October. And so that has left a, a huge hole in the, you know, in our hearts and in the heart of the farm. And it's, it will never be the same, but we know that, you know, that was Hunter's favorite place to be. He loved the farm and he loved, um, he, he gave it everything that he had. He was, you know, hardworking and dedicated. And so we're going to, you know, continue that for him and just, you know, keep that legacy going. But, um, you know, we feel him when he's down there, he's always, he helped, you know, with this season. So everybody that comes down just is, you know, is just devastated because they, you just never know what an an impact you live, leave on people. Um, so they've just been so used to having him at the booth, you know, to see and smiling and just, and just talking. So, um, you know, and it will continue to be, to be hard and it'll never be the same, but we'll, we're continuing on for him and, and, you know, trying to be as, as strong as we can, because we know that's what he, he wants. I'm deeply sorry for your loss. Thank you. I'd like to welcome my next guest. Al Slate is with Slate Farms. Al, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. We heard your buddy, uh, George, at the top of the segment. So tell me, how long has your family been farming? Uh, my family's been in farming for like three or three generations. Uh, we just 
started doing uh, strawberries in the last seven years. How does it feel to keep up the family tradition? Oh, I, I mean, I enjoy it. I always say that you, you got to love farming to do it, or you, you would uh, you would get to go home at early in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. What are the hours like? Well, they get uh, at this time of year. They're they're pretty hectic. Uh, it's pretty much from the time you can see to the time you can't. Okay, that's a long day. Yes. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about strawberry season with Jen Kelly Moreland of Kelly's Berry Farm and Al Slate of Slate Farms. Now, Al, you mentioned that you all have been growing strawberries just for the past seven years. I'm curious, what else do you grow? Uh, we grow uh, corn, soybeans, and wheat, and tobacco. Tobacco. Wow. You know, I, I grew up in the suburbs, so that's left me with very little knowledge on farming. Uh, so I'm interested to know, like, when you go from growing tobacco to strawberries, do you have to make any changes to the soil? Well, we don't grow them in the same locations. Uh, so, no, there's no changes to the soil or anything. Okay. We, we, till, we till the soil for the uh, strawberries to lay the plastic in the fall to plant a new crop. Okay. Okay. Now, both of your families own and operate their own farms, which I understand is becoming increasingly difficult and very rare. Jen, what challenges has your family faced as you all are you know, maintaining your land? I'm sure. So um, like any farm, it takes a lot of hard work and, and dedication um, with, you know, berry farming it's a lot more hands-on labor you know so you don't have the as much big heavy machinery but it means a lot of hands-on and when it's family you know that means everybody has to has to get out there and do it but uh, everybody knows the importance of the farm and it means so much because you know it's it's just your legacy so everybody kind of does their part and we strive to to make it better al same question to you like what are some of the challenges of operating a family farm well, uh, just like uh, the lady just said, the labor is harder and harder to get a hold of. And where I'm at here, I live uh, right outside of Clarksville, Tennessee, and the uh, urban sprawl is getting on us. Mm. Uh, the uh, there's a, there's a large uh, development going across the road, which is more people to buy strawberries. That's true. Definitely more folks to buy strawberries, but uh, it's hopefully it's not encroaching upon your land. Tell me what what it was like before when you were growing up out there. Where I, where we when it, when I was growing up here, my my kids always laughed at me about how old I am because I told them I live here before the interstate hmm. was built. So it was it was just a very rural community. Um, I could go. Um, I could go ride my bike all the way about six, seven miles around the community and never see a car. Nice. And and now you wouldn't get 10 feet out the road without getting run over. Now, I understand that they've built a school across the street from the family farm. Do you all interact much with the new school? Uh, yes, they, they come over and do a, uh, I guess that's the easiest field trip you can do. Hmm. Because uh, all you, all they have to do is walk out the, the the door and walk over to the strawberry patch, and uh, 
they come, I think there's like 170 some students from kindergarten to sixth or seventh grade over there. And uh, each class comes and over about a two day period, they all, they get to find out where strawberries actually come from. Yeah. Eat some fresh picked. That must taste delicious. Jen, I'm curious, how about you? Like, has the area around your farm changed much in the recent years? Um, yes, it has changed some, you know, everybody's kind of moving out from Nashville, everybody's moving into Nashville, and then Nashville's kind of expanding. So, um, you know, over the years, we have had so many more people come out to the farm. So, uh, like Mr. Slate was saying, it's, you know, it's a great problem to have, but you just have to make some more work on you, you know, you got to plant more strawberries and and have more labor, but um <sighs> We've definitely, you know, seen a lot of growth. And then with our farmers markets, you know, we're at a lot of farmers markets throughout the week, Franklin Farmers Market, 12 South, um, East Nashville. So our community has really grown. And then they, you know, bring their families out to the farm to kind of pick their own. So. Hmm. You know, a, a lot. Um, you mentioned that showing kids where strawberries come from is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people yes. head to the grocery store to buy their produce. And sometimes they don't put much effort into thinking about what it takes to bring fresh food to them. Tell me, Jen, how has growing up on a farm influenced how you see food? Absolutely. It has influenced it so much. So um, just knowing, I think it's so important for children to know that you know, food just doesn't appear in the grocery store. It's actually takes a lot of hard work, sweat and dedication, you know, for it to be grown and to make it to the grocery store. So I think it's so important for families and children, especially to come out to the farm to see, you know, where it is grown. And um, I was a teacher myself. So it was so, you know, it's amazing what children, you know, don't know and how much you can teach them just from being out on the farm and out in nature and seeing where their food you know, where food is grown. So, you know, Al, do you think knowing where your food comes from influences how you eat? Yes, of course. Um, knowing, knowing where it was came from, what, how it was grown, that is really, uh, uh, become a big issue with a lot of people. I, I get questions constantly on how, how do we grow the strawberries? What do we do? Uh, you know, what does it take to, to get it to this point Not, uh, from the people that come and pick their own? You know, with the globalization of food options, we can often want foods that are not in season. Al, so tell me, how do you sell your produce? Uh, farm stand right there beside the uh, strawberry patch. Simple that's, as that. Did you say where? It's simple as that. You just set up yes. the stand and you selling them. Yes. I love that. Right beside, right beside the patch, and it's people People come. You know, thinking about where our food comes from, November, about five years ago, I bought some kale. And it was in the fridge for a couple days. I decided finally I'm going to eat my kale. I go to wash it off, and I f find this huge clump of dirt that I think is a clump of dirt. Turns out it was a snail. And that got me thinking. I decided to keep the snail and named, named him Little Homie. He lived with me for about three years before he met uh, an untimely demise. But that really made me think about food, where it comes from, because I did some research. I went to the grocery store and asked them where do they get their kale and how do they process that. And 
it's really interesting to me to talk to you both as you have this product that you sell and you hand it out to folks. I wonder, has anybody ever come to you and mentions like how much they love the food and the produce that you all produce? Jen? Yes, they do. They express their gratitude and, uh, you know, thank you so much for letting us come out and pick and, and just have the, you know, a healthy, nutritious product for families. It just, it means a lot and it feels good to be able to provide that for families. You know, we have the advent of the internet these days, so ideas and recipes can become quickly viral. And all it takes is a post. Suddenly, everybody will want some strawberries. So, Al, how do you keep up with the fluctuating demand of your product? Oh, wow. Just uh, you try to you, – you plant it's whatever you think you're going to have. You, you're planting strawberries the, the in uh, September, October of the fall before. You're going to have them in June. And uh, – really just figure on growing more than you think you can sell just to keep up with it. And, uh, uh, I mean, that's kind of, it's hard to predict what I'm going to be selling next year, but I know within the next, uh, this month, I've got to order my plants for next year. Okay. Okay. Um, Jen, I understand that congratulations are in order. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. I'm expecting a new little farmer in September. So, <laughs> oh wow, when's your, when's your due date? Um, like September 11th is what they're saying. But <laughs> hey, I'm born on the 22nd, so. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, expect an awesome little Virgo on your hands. I, I, yes. I got a question for you. Have either of you ever gotten tired of eating strawberries? Um, (laughs) yeah, I'd say that, um, my family, like, you know, my dad, my uncle, brother and cousin, they would probably say yes, because I'm not there all day, every day able to eat them. I don't get tired of them, (laughs) but I think that, I think they do just having them there to eat on all day, you know, (laughs) at least it's healthy though. That's right. That's right. Al, you know, what are you hoping for the future of your farm? Well, uh, you know, I don't, I'm getting older, close to retirement. Uh, hopefully, uh, one of my children will come along and decide they want to do it. Um, if it is, it'll still be here for it. That's, uh, and other than that, uh, my wife's always wanting me to retire, but, you know, I'd say, you know, what am I going to do? So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll keep on as long as I can stand it. Mm-hmm. Jen. What are your hopes for the future of Kelly's Berry Farm? Sure. So, um, you know, this year has has really made it difficult, but um, I know that my dad and uncle will continue doing this until, you know, they're not able to. And my cousin will and I will. Um, and hopefully it can, you know, it's kind of just a generational way of life for us. And I hope to pass it down to my kids someday and and just keep the legacy going. I want to thank you both for this conversation Thanks to Al Slate of Slate Farm and Jen Kelly Moreland from Kelly's Berry Farm. Thank you both again for being on the show today. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the consumer side of strawberry season and learn more about community gardens. Oh, and and what's your favorite way to eat strawberries? Send us a tweet at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking growing strawberries. Now, let's talk about acquiring them. Of course, there are more options for fresh produce than heading out to your nearest grocery store. And for some of us, the nearest grocery store is far away, not easily accessible. That's where community can really come into play, helping people stay healthy and happy. To help us learn more about community gardening, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Natalie Ashker Sievers is director of Tennessee Local Food Summit, and Nella Miss Pearl Frierson is the founder of Brooklyn Heights Community Garden. Thanks to you both for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. Miss Pearl, you have been kind enough to take your time out of your vacation to be with us. I want to thank you for that. So let me start with you. What inspired you to create the Brooklyn Heights Community Garden? Miss Pearl, you with us? We're going to move on. Yes, yes. Oh, hi, Miss Pearl. How are you? I'm I'm great. I am a little bit techno savvy, uh, underscore not good. well we got you now so okay good so tell me what inspired you to create the brooklyn heights community garden okay well first off uh, myself my five daughters we moved from public housing jc napier and so we moved to the neighborhood and the neighborhood um they didn't interact the community was not there and so um because i had babies young i did not want that same thing for my children so i wanted a better life or a different life and I want to introduce it to them in a non-intrusive threatening ways and I know that you heal on the cellular level so um that's how I started the garden from that from that uh, vantage point where did you grow up now JC Napier Holmes right off of Lafayette when you out south Nashville. in south Nashville so you know when you were starting out with the Brooklyn Heights Community Garden was it difficult to get support for the idea of it? Well, sure, but my the way I think, see, I've taken all my life since 19 to decide not to keep the hand that I was dealt. I decided to go get a whole new deck. Mm-hmm. So I started books about uh, how your mind functions and about energy. And so I never thought that if I done it, it's going to be hard. No, I said, if I build it, they would come. So I would, write, I would write out my vision. I would just have vision boards. I would sit down with my children. We would just fantasize about how it could look. And then I would tell other people. And then they started coming. The, the uh, volunteers, the people who had the knowledge of the computers, everybody just started showing up. And you, so. You truly manifested this. That's wonderful. Now, tell me this. Why did you think a garden would be the perfect way to build community? When I was young, um, my grandparents, I'm, I'm the fifth of 10 children, and I have over 300 cousins. Mm. I, had, mm-hmm, I, had four, I had over 16 aunties and uncles. We're down to like two now. Mm-hmm. And my mother passed, my, my father passed. So we was community. We would go to that farm, and we would, they let us play. They didn't ever make us work. But in actuality, we was, we was working. We thought it was playing. And so that instilled in me how great that felt and how energetic I was and how youthful I just, I'm aging, but I'm not aging. Uh, you know, I had somebody just sitting around worried. Yeah. I probably can 
Ron, you. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe so. I'll be down for a race when you get back from vacation. Now, <laughs> Natalie, you're a devotee. You're a devotee of community-supported agriculture. It's also known as CSA. Explain to me, what is community-supported agriculture, and, and how is that different from, say, a community garden like Miss Pearl's? Sure. Yeah. Um, a CSA, yeah, like you said, it stands for community supported agriculture and it's a program and different farms will have their own CSA program. So as a consumer, if you want to buy local food, maybe you don't, you know, you're not in a position to start a garden or, um, to do the, the growing of your own food, you can support a local farm by signing up with their program. And, you know, there's different models. Basically you sign up and then you pick up you pay in either up front or in installments throughout the season. And then you pick up your box of produce um, or they might have it kind of set up like a market and then you, you pick up your produce that way. But it's a really important way of supporting farmers because um, as was mentioned earlier, farmers can't predict the weather um, or, you know, what's going to happen. There's always going to be bumper crops and then there's always going to be some crop failures. So it's a really great way of, um, just kind of investing in the farm and saying, I'm here to support you and I'll uh, reap the benefits and rewards with you. Do you get to pick what's in the box? Good question. It would depend on the farm. So like I said, all farms, they, they lay out their programs in different ways. Typically though, I would say not. There are probably some where you can do some customizing, but generally it's kind of like, just this is what the farm has. This is what's in season and, and this is what you get. I'm sure this may differ from farm to farm, but is it expensive to sign up with the CSA garden? Uh, yeah. So like, yeah, it is, it would differ, but you know, they, it might range somewhere between 25, $35 or something like that a week. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's some that are above and below that range, but, um, yeah. And there's, and there's oftentimes different, uh, you know, schedules. So maybe you can get on an every other week pickup or um, something like that. And, and sometimes farms will be willing to to do some, you know, as financial assistance. Maybe you can sometimes find find farms that can can work with you like that. So it feels like it kind of will work out with what you maybe even cheaper than what you would, you know, spend at the grocery store. Because I'm just learning about this, but you've been doing it for a while. Tell me, how did you get started? Sure. Yeah. I started volunteering for Jeff Poppins CSA. He's known as the barefoot farmer. And, um, you know, I, I got into that and then I started managing that program and yeah, it was just an incredible way of sort of, you know, once I went to visit the farm, I was like, Oh wow, this is, this is amazing. It was life changing. Just seeing where the food came from and uh, how it was grown. And, and to your, to your point, yeah, it can be more affordable, especially there's lots of small farms out there that are growing organic food. Maybe they're not certified organic because it's expensive to have that certification, but, um, but there's lots of organic, uh, growers who, yeah, if you went to the grocery store and you filled up your basket with a a bunch of organic stuff, it might, it would definitely probably tally out to be more expensive. Miss Pearl, is the food grown in the Brooklyn Heights Community Garden only for those who've worked in the garden or can anyone in the, in the community just come up and grab themselves a strawberry? Okay, our premise is you work, you eat, and it's um, whomever comes. And we 
we've, we've moved our status up from just a community guard. We also a certified farm. And um, what we do, anybody who wants to come to work can come work. And it's different. Um, some people are not going to come out there in the um, sunlight. Mm-hmm. So they can do technical work. And that's still considered working. You know, like doing the PR stuff, passing out flyers, uh, making sure that uh, people know about our website or the events. Because we do more than just farming. And we, we do, we um, address, you know, like the creative side of people, the mental, because of, you know, the other, um, my training, because of other training that I have. And I, we make sure that we deal with the whole, whole person. Because I know you spoke about the men of those young black men that's in college, mm-hmm. dropping out. And it it really stuck. And I wish they could make sure they come to Brooklyn's because, um, you know, I do have some tools that could help. Well, hopefully they take advantage of the resources that you're offering. Got a question for you. What did it take to get that upgrade from community garden to a farm? You have to get an um, EIN number. Um, let me see, get an EIN number, then call the, I didn't think you were going to ask me that question. Okay, mm-hmm. call, you call your state office and get the, uh, just get your all the land certified. Okay. They'll send you a number, a farm number. Now, we know that areas and communities, plenty of them, that don't have access to fresh and healthy foods, they're known as food deserts. Would you say that Brooklyn Heights itself was a food desert? For sure. Because right now, um, but it's not. It's going to change. Because all those, you know, gentrification is happening all up and down West and East Trinity Lane. So it's going to be a pretty soon uh, store. But um, we've been, you know, we've been a food desert. That's why a lot of people have come to help because they know that uh, there's no grocery store within five to six miles of us. And the average person doesn't have cars, you know, transportation to get to, you know, get to a place. Because then I'm thinking the dollar store, they have some vegetables there now, but they're not that good looking. Mm -hmm. And see... You don't want to eat right. I don't want to talk negative, but it's it doesn't look that good. I went up there just to see what they was offering. And that that's not the answer. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about community-supported agriculture and community gardens with Nella Miss Pearl Frierson and Natalie Ashker Seavers. Natalie, I want to know, you know, let's say I have a very busy schedule, and I don't know, you know, I do a live radio show five days a week or something like that, but I still want to eat fresh local foods. Is signing up with the CSA the way to go? It's a really good question. I would not say that a CSA is for everyone. If you work a crazy work schedule and you don't have time to cook, then you might end up wasting your your produce. So I would say if that is if you're in that situation, I would either find a community garden like Miss Pearls to support or go to a local farmers market. There's some really awesome farmers markets if you have the ability to get there. Um, or support local restaurants that are buying are buying local foods. Okay, so those would be the best way. Because I'm wondering, like, if I 
want to eat local, but I don't have time to cook. Or if I can't cook, I can cook, by the way. I'm just speaking generally for people. <laughs> like, what are some of the best ways? So you would suggest, like, either finding a community farm or heading to the local's farmer's market. Are there prepackaged meals that some of these CSAs prepare? You know, most CSAs are, are really just providing raw raw produce or fruits. But at the farmer's markets, there are a lot of vendors that are that are serving pre-prepared foods and using great local ingredients. So I, I would say that if, if you're looking for more prepared foods, I would I would check out the farmer's markets. When I was younger, I was told that a person who works with the land will never be poor. And I took that as a lesson about healing. Miss Pearl, have you seen the Brooklyn Heights garden well, the Brooklyn Heights farm heal the community? Oh, for sure. See, some of, uh, when we first started, we've been in existence over 12 years. And when we first started, some of the young men was on alcohol. Uh, a lot of them didn't have uh, jobs. So they was like trying to be, uh, well, they was being dope jokes. So I told them, I said, no judgment. I said, I don't condemn or condone what you're doing, but you're welcome here, but don't bring the foolishness or don't bring that lifestyle. One man got up, he's not an alcoholic anymore. And I know because what I've done, I made, I called him a captain. He didn't be long know what he was doing. And I knew that I was giving him ownership. So I, I told him, I said, you're the captain. You make sure this happens this day, this happened this day. And he took it to heart. And he started doing in the, I would look out the window. Even when I wasn't out there, he'd be pulling up weeds. And he, because when you work with the land, you are getting the energy from it. And your energy, your physical energy Inside your, your spiritual energy, inside your body is interacting and it has to transform you. He stopped drinking. So, of course, yes. And even myself, I had an L4 and L5 rupture. So, I, but I just kept farming. I kept doing the best I could. I wouldn't even bend over and I would just do these deep prayers, Qigong. I would do whatever healing modalities that I knew, reflexology, and I healed without surgery. So, and I have, uh, you know, I have that on file where you know, a lot of people like, well, show us. I can show you that I actually had those injuries. And, you know, it helps with depression. Mm-hmm. It helps when the, when the COVID was going on, the COVID pandemic, when it first started, uh, I had COVID and I got it. But I would go in the garden where nobody was at and I just kept working. And then some other people asked me, could they come? Because they was, you know, suffering from being cut off. And I said, well, go over there where nobody's at. And those little young children thrive in school now. Do you all grow plants and herbs with medicinal properties? For sure. The herbs that we grow is peppermint, orange, cinnamon, spearmint, mugworth, fennel, sage, mullein, and a whole lot more that I don't forget. Hmm. And um, this year we're making sage out of them. So, not sage, but uh, salves, soaps, tinctures, and we're teaching how to do it. You know? Yeah. That's wonderful. You know, climate change is another factor that we all face. Natalie, how how do small scale farms make an impact on our environment? Sure. Uh, I would say, you know, by using good farming practices and when I say good, um, you know, farming practices that kind of restore nutrients to the soil as opposed to just depleting it, you know, that is a way that we can can mitigate climate change. There's a whole lot of research and, and studies happening around uh, regenerative agriculture as a, a tool for mitigating climate change. 
so that's huge. And then also, you know, the more that we're supporting local farms and we're creating that demand there, we're also helping the environment because our food doesn't doesn't have to travel so far. I mean, Nashville imports billions of dollars worth of food and and most of that food travels 2000 miles. So, you know, just by supporting local, you're um, you're doing good for the environment. You know, the show's focus has been on strawberry season. Natalie, I'd like to know what you're planning to do with your strawberry haul. you have any favorite recipes? Yes. Actually, I've been thinking about this. I'm a little bit north, so my strawberries are just coming in right now. And I am going to make some strawberry crisps, which I love to do because, you know, making a crisp is really easy. You can just throw the strawberries and some sugar into a pan and then put a little topping of uh, oats and brown sugar and butter, and then bake it. So easy and so delicious. Speaking of recipes, we got a couple sent to us by Judy Wright of the blog, Judy's Chickens. We're talking roasted strawberry and rosemary jam and other tasty goodies. We've got the link on the post for this episode. But all right, Miss Pearl, what advice do you have for anyone who wants to start their own community garden? What should they do first? This is my personal mantra. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you must. That simply means just do it. Hmm. Um, look, look it up because there's no sense trying to reinvent the wheel. Look it up or call me or take or call me, come back. And I'll tell you a lot of stuff that I've done. I just um, find you a, a plot of land. If you don't have some land, use container gardens. Use containers to grow it. You can grow on your balcony. You can grow it inside your house. You just got to be willing to do the work. And it's best to have a team of people. But if you just got yourself, let it be that. And the people will come. It's just, you know, look it up. And it's not as hard as we think. We make it hard by by thinking and mm-hmm. rethinking and not moving. So get moving. That's it. Get moving. And that is it. I want to thank you, Miss Nella, Miss Pearl Frierson, the founder of Brooklyn Heights Community Garden. And she was along with Natalie Asker Severs, director of Tennessee Local Food Summit. Thank you to you both for being here. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Monday, we talk comics and graphic memoir with Malika Garib and a crack squad of local artists and illustrators. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The music geniuses behind our theme are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Willie Sims, Latha Godkale, and Judy Wright. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you next week, everybody. And be good to each other.